Welcome to Voices of Experience on Kixie AM 880 and KKNW 1150 AM. It's simulcast with KKNW AM. My name is Paul Casey. You know what? I said last week that that show is the best show in the history of radio. Yes. I'm going to admit I was wrong. <laughs> you were wrong. Yeah, because this okay. one is. Oh, okay, good. This one is going to be a lot be of pressure here. The best in the history of radio. <laughs> nice. That's Eric Crema talking to me. How are you, Eric? I'm doing great, and I want to mention too that this program airs on podcasts. So anyone that at any time, anywhere, that on whatever device they want, they can get this show. Right. So I recommend that. Thank you for that. You are correct. It keep you company. You know, if you if you're commuting home like an hour from now, listen to it. You know, on the app, listen to. It. We're not and, in the app, yeah, and, and I do believe I have this right. If you um, Google Voices of Experience, that's all you need to do. And then there'll be a Voices of Experience something there, and I think it's involved with some other outfit. But right beneath that is this show, and the podcast is right there. So you can just it's go Voices of Experience, mm-hmm. boom, and you can listen to them all. And there's Eric Ryder here. He's looking very important behind the scenes there. How are you doing, Eric? <laughs> I'm doing well. I'm glad to, glad to know I'm looking important. Yes, <laughs> because you. you are. You are the heart and the brains of Absolutely. this Absolutely. This thing, we wouldn't even be on the air without Eric. That's right. And we don't want to make him mad no. because he could shut us off and we could sit here and think we are on the air. Yep, that's <laughs> but, right. But we are today. Well, as I said... I didn't want to over-advertise it as the best show in the history of radio, but just hear what's going to be on today. Voices of History, again. Yes. Fifty years ago today, this event took place in Long Beach, California Harbor. That's all I'm going to give you. And uh, if you have it, great. Uh, If you don't, that's great, too. Um, One hit wonder for today. This is a family of five siblings who recorded this song in 1970. Very uplifting song in very turbulent times. It has been re-recorded many times by many different artists over the years. That's a real mm. shot in the dark there. Mm-hmm. But um, yes, so that's going to be on later today. Our feature today is Seattle University's president, Eduardo Peñover. He is, again, the president of Seattle University. He spoke to the Rotary Club, and I re- thought the speech was really captivating because we hear so much about freedom of speech on campuses and things like that and Mm -hmm. people not being able to express themselves. He jumped into it in pretty good detail, and I think it's worth hearing what he had to say. Our comedy clip today is from Pat Cashman and Lisa Foster, and uh, the subject I'm going to play from their podcast is something called Earworms. Earworms. Do you know what that is? Earworms. You should in this business. Do you, Eric? Sure. It's just a song that gets stuck in your head and you can't get it out. See, I have not heard that, but it makes sense. Yes. No, my my brothers used to torment me with the idea of earwigs. (laughs) And eat my brain while I was sleeping. And maybe that's where the insomnia comes from. Okay, uh, (laughs) that that possibly could be. Totally different. But, yeah, earworms. Earworms. And and I've got mine, so they talk about that today, and I think it's... uh, Made some really good points about that. The only thing I really don't like about it is, you'll hear when they we hear it is that one of the songs they play. That's the earworm I have now. 
Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I can't get it out. by Pat Cashman. Right, exactly. <laughs> the thing we're going to be talking about today is uh, during a lull we have later in the show, I'll say it's a lull, but it's like subjects we meander about, meandering musings. I'm stealing that from Neil Peterson. That's what he mm. does in his blog. And as a matter of fact, I got some of my information from his blog on catalytic converters. We know about those. They've been getting stolen yes. in record numbers. He just gives a lot of practical advice on that, which I didn't know, and I'm going to share some of that with huh. the audience today. We're also going to be visiting with uh, the 12 most beautiful places to visit in Washington State, according to Trip Advisor. I think before the show we had uh, an idea that majority of them are over here on the west side, but there are a couple yeah. on the east side of the state which uh, are very uh, great attractions as well. And then I'm just going to end with uh, something along the lines from Entrepreneur Magazine about 15 jobs that you can work at home. So that's we'll, great. Uh, go with Love that it. today. So let's just get right to uh, Pat Cashman and Lisa Foster with a slice of their peculiar podcast. Hey, uh, have you ever, I know you have, everybody has. Have you ever yeah. gotten a what they call a um, um, earworm stuck in your head. Uh, it, mm -hmm. Usually it's a musical thing and you, it goes over and over in your brain uh, mm -hmm. when you're walking around, even when you're trying to go to sleep. Uh, my yeah, I, wife, have, I currently, I currently have one right now. I can't, I can't get it out of my head. Okay. But, tell no. me what it is. It's Taylor Swift. Shake it off. I don't know why I've it's playing in my head while I'm sleeping. It's playing in, in the morning. It's playing at night. I can't, I'll hum it. I'm like, God, where, why is that happening? That's my current one. What's yours? Well, mine's much more more old school. And because it's in a commercial, maybe that's why it keeps coming back. But uh, the Johnny Cash song, I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, oh, man. In my underwear, <laughs> man. I've traveled every road in this here land. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. But you, if you look at the lyrics to that song, uh, he mentions Ellensburg in there, too. So. Oh. There's that. I've been to Pittsburgh, Parkersburg, Gravelburg, Colorado, Ellensburg, Rexburg, Vicksburg, Eldorado, Laramore, Atmore, Havistock, Chattanooga, Chaska, Nebraska, Alaska, Opelika, Barrett, Waterloo, Kalamazoo, Kansas City, Sioux City, Cedar City, Dodge City, what a pity. I've been everywhere, man. But my wife has one right now, which is driving her nuts. And it's not just because of the song itself, but it's because of the implication of the song. And it's the uh, uh, Frankie Av uh, Frankie Valley, uh, okay. and and it's uh, my eyes adored you. Remember yeah. that song? Yeah, yeah. Song. But if you listen to the lyrics, he he, it, it's sort of like a peeping tom song. But what, whoever said he did, and so it becomes kind of creepy in a way. And he mentioned never noticed that. And he mentions that he's never actually laid a hand on her. Oh, I never laid a hand on you. My eyes adored you. 
So well, that sounds more like that sounds more like he's loving her from afar, don't you think? Yeah, and I think, but don't you think, uh, never laid a hand on you could have been rendered more artfully. Like I, I never. <laughs> I never came close to you. I, I never. I looked. I never like you said, you. I, I, I viewed you from afar. That would have been yeah. more elegant than. Well, boy, if I had that. a chance, if I had a chance to lay a hand, I mean, it's like I never strangled you, but my eyes adored you. Well, I didn't take it like that. Well, <laughs> like well, I never whipped you yeah, or beat you to the pole. I never garroted you, but my eyes adored you. Yeah. No, I don't know. He he does go on to say, carried your books from school. Okay. Playing make believe you're married to me. Okay. What does make believe mean? Okay. So see, he's, he's, <laughs> fantas he's fantasizing in, in a creepy grade. way. Yeah, walking home every day. Yeah. I don't know. I don't. Find it worries it. me. It just worries <laughs> me, and it obviously worries my wife, which is why she's trying to get the song out of her head. All right. Well, here's a sure. Here's a surefire way. Let me, before you go there, this is a surefire way to get that earworm. If you want to get that out of your head, mm -hmm. and I may try this today to get Taylor Swift's song out of my head. All you have to do is play about 12 seconds of It's a Small World. <laughs> oh. Just 12 seconds will do it, I promise you. No, but that, but that, that is trading, uh, that is trading <laughs> prisoners for arms. That, that's no good. I know, but just telling you. I know it would work, but it would work. A horrible price to pay. Yes. Oh, that's got me laughing, Paul. Okay, really. Well, I just really like to go to that segments and what they do in their peculiar podcast because it's true to the word that it is peculiar. Yes. Um, but the thing is they tackle the biggest issues in the world. Exactly. You know, that one I have been thinking about for many times. I've listened to it several times. And, yes, that is just a really huge problem. Well, her solution of the, you know, it's a small world, so – that brought me right back to when my daughter was five. We were in line for that ride at Disneyland. It, you know, the whole It's a Small World ride. Have you been on that? I have. Yeah, okay. A couple times. So the guy in front of me had a very rambunctious child. And to, to keep the child at bay during the two-hour-long wait to get in, he would sing that to her over and over and over again. So by the time we got on the ride, I was about ready to lose it. Of course. <laughs> that song is definitely a worm. Well, yeah, worm. yeah, and I don't see, you know, to um, the defensive Pat, you know, Lisa Foster. I mean, this is controversial. Small, small world. I mean, that's going to be in my head. I mean, that's one that you can't get out. So I don't know if that's the solution, but we're going to have to debate this a lot longer. But yes. It's like a scorched earth policy. Uh, right. Using that to get, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like a hard, hard reboot. Out. You're going yeah. to substitute small, small world. world it's a for small anything? world, yeah. yeah. No, uh, it doesn't go. But the song I mentioned before that I now I'm not going to listen to their podcast anymore. It's that I've been everywhere, man. That yeah. Johnny Cash song. Yeah. Oh my God, I 
It's in a commercial right now, I, I think. think. You're right. So, yeah. That's right. It is on the commercial, but I can't get that song out of my head. So thank you, Pat Cashman, <laughs> for that. So, um, All right, so anyhow, we'll move on. Next up is the president of Seattle University. Eduardo M. Peñover is Seattle University's 22nd president. He spoke to the Seattle Rotary Club recently about the controversies and the role of higher education in our community and world today. Freedom of speech, of course, is a major issue on college campuses, and he addresses that. Now, his remarks have been edited because of time limitations. He was dean of Cornell University's law school from 2014 to 2021, he clerked for U.S. Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens. His law degree is from Yale Law School, but his most important credential is that he is a native Washingtonian and grew up in Puyallup. The most frequent thing I'm asked is about the state of freedom of expression on campus. And some of the concern over the state of speech on campus is really the product of, of a fairly concerted campaign uh, in certain corners of the media, motivated by a hostility towards higher education, which is perceived as too liberal. And that hostility long predates the current conversations about campus speech. And I think we can see evidence of this in the, uh, the fact that some of the contemporary critics of higher education are some of the people who until just recently were complaining about the lack of free speech on campuses have sort of shifted, pivoted to uh, taking affirmative efforts to stifle progressive campus voices, uh, often using the coercive power of the state uh, to accomplish that. So some of those who as recently as three years ago were complaining about the lack of freedom of speech on our campuses are now promoting sweeping and often fairly vaguely worded bans on so-called critical race theory on public university campuses. So just to give one example, in 2019, the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, criticized higher education institutions for failing to protect freedom of speech on campus. And he said, and I'll quote, it's imperative for the future of our society that our state colleges and universities protect a culture of free speech on their campuses. And I agree. He urged Florida universities to sign a pledge to protect freedom of expression, and they did. But then this past year, Governor Santos signed what he calls the Stop Woke Act, which, among other things, prohibits private employers with more than 15 employees from advocating certain perspectives on questions of racial justice in employee training sessions, and a federal judge recently enjoined the enforcement of that law as a fairly, he called it, a fairly flagrant violation of private employers' First Amendment rights. And that law also applies to any mandatory activities in public K-20 through education in the state of Florida. The Florida law's provisions ostensibly targeted at so-called critical race theory, and I put that in scare quotes just because the definition of that in the, the act is so broad that it might be read to prohibit, for example, a university official endorsing the idea of affirmative action or asserting that black people experience any kind of systematic disadvantage in American life. Now, Florida is hardly alone in this effort. In a recent study by the pro-free speech organization, PEN America, found that 36 states have introduced legislation aiming to prohibit the teaching of critical race theory with nearly 40% of those bills targeting higher education along with K through 12. And every one of those pieces of legislation was introduced by people who recently were criticizing universities for failing to protect free speech. 
Now, critical race theory is not the only issue where the expression of progressive ideas on campus is being stifled. Idaho's anti-abortion laws are so broad in their reach that the University of Idaho recently issued guidance to its faculty that they must remain studiously neutral and particularly not endorse abortion rights in their discussions of that issue with students, uh, and that the state might consider any affirmative support of abortion rights by faculty in the classroom or in one-on-one -on -one conversations with students to constitute a felony. Now, you might be tempted to argue, and I, would, I think there would be a discussion to be had here, right, that it's correct that faculty should try to remain neutral in the classroom and talking about controversial issues, right? But I think it's important to recognize that the same law that might turn that into a felony would not prohibit the faculty member from advocating in the classroom or in one-on-one -on -one conversations with students the perspective that abortion is wrong and should be prohibited under all circumstances, right? So it's not consistent with the free expression of ideas. And so I just want to, so kind of stepping back from that, let me just be really clear at the outset that multiple things can be true at the same time, right? Uh, it can be true on campus that there are a Darth of conservative voices, and there are on campuses, right? Uh, Samuel a Abrams, a political scientist at Sarah Lawrence, found that among college professors, liberals outnumber conservatives by about six to one. And, and at colleges in the Northeast, the ratio is 28 to one. It's also true that in, in certain occasions, universities have, have failed to adequately protect the academic freedom or freedom of expression of students and faculty who've expressed controversial views, and disproportionately those who have expressed controversial conservative views. And part of that is because progressive views on campus are not particularly controversial, right, because of that imbalance. So, so that, that can be true as well, right? And yet some, and I'm not saying all, but some of the loudest voices who have been sort of relentlessly attacking higher education for its failures are, are doing so in bad faith. And they're not really interested in promoting academic freedom or freedom of speech or viewpoint diversity, not trying to make higher education better, but they're just interested in, in kind of uh, tearing down public confidence in higher education. Rather than point scoring, I think what we actually need is a really good faith conversation about how we can teach our young people about the value of free inquiry and open civil disagreement. Free inquiry and civil disagreement are really essential elements of the future of our democracy, and I think they're central to the university's mission of fearlessly searching for the truth and preparing the leaders of tomorrow. And these are important lessons that we need to be teaching our students. And teaching them requires that we expose our students, and I would say, and ourselves as educators and researchers and administrators to a wide range of ideas, including ideas that we might consider to be wrong or mistaken or even offensive. In a society where robust but civil engagement across disagreement is the rare exception, the university needs to be a place where that happens. It needs to be countercultural in that regard. And I think these days, off-campus, to a certain extent on-campus, we tend to experience disagreement only episodically and in a very impoverished way. Emotionally manipulative algorithms stage-manage our online experiences to ensure that the forms of disagreement that we encounter are usually anything but thoughtful. They're aimed at promoting virality, and so they're algorithmically designed uh, to intentionally make us angry or perhaps feel morally superior. Uh, but not to encourage us to reflect or help us discern. Our lack of experience with truly thoughtful and thought-provoking disagreement uh, has led to a collective atrophy of the virtues essential to civil discourse. And we can think about those virtues from the perspective of the listener and the speaker. So on, on the one hand, if we're to have productive engagement, we need to be willing to speak even when what we have uh, to, when what we have to say uh, can give offense, right? Even to people we usually find ourselves 
in agreement with. And, and that doesn't mean we should aim to give offense, right? But it can often happen. We need to have the courage to speak. But we, we need to speak in ways that affirm the dignity and the value of those people we disagree with without sugarcoating our disagreement. And then on the other hand, we can't really make progress in our search for the truth unless we're willing to listen and engage even to people with whom we disagree. And again, even when they express views that we find unsettling or perhaps offensive. And, and fostering these virtues is an area where universities have, have frequently recently fallen short, more often than not because they fear controversy or bad publicity. I think more, more that than an affirmative desire to promote or suppress a particular point of view. And I say that having kind of lived through those controversies with other administrators and hearing them speak, they often will express a really strong desire to promote uh, different points of view, even while they're struggling with the negative publicity of the tweet storm that something is generating. I'm very proud that last year when a conservative student group at, at Seattle University's law school invited a speaker from an anti-LGBTQ rights group, the Alliance Defending Freedom, to come speak on campus, the talk went forward without any disruption. And you don't read that story in the press when it happens like that, right? You only read about it when it's disrupted. We received a number of, a small number of requests from law, law school community to cancel the speech. Uh, the law school's dean properly rejected those requests, explaining that we don't cancel student-sponsored speakers because of the point of view the speaker expresses. And rather than disrupting the speech, the law students did exactly the right thing. They set up a table and engaged in their own counter speech or chose not to attend the talk. Our goal at Seattle University is, is not to avoid disagreement, but to become and teach our students to become better at disagreeing. Seattle University's president, Eduardo M. Peñover, in a recent address to Seattle Rotary Club number four. When a flock of geese knocked out two engines on U.S. Airways Flight 1549 right after takeoff from LaGuardia Airport, who would you want in the cockpit? Captain Sully or a pilot on their maiden flight? If Captain Sully was your choice, then experience is important to you. And that's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. A variety of topics are explored, including local and national public affairs, self-employment, travel, lifestyles, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Now Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score in the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. Welcome back to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey along with Eric Crema and Eric Ryder, we were coming to you live from beautiful downtown Factoria. Yes. I stole that from Johnny Carson. Remember, beautiful downtown Burbank. 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 Let's see. We're going to move into our Voices of History phase and uh, what's going on on this day or a couple days before and a couple days after. Anyhow, let's get it rolling. On October 30th, 1938, Martians invaded our planet and annihilated much of the population with heat rays. Do you remember that? little before my time. Yeah, it was a terrible thing, but it was a fiction, and it was called War of the Worlds, uh, with Orson Welles' broadcast that originated from Mercury Theater in New York. 
I didn't really know what happened because I've always heard that they had a disclaimer at the beginning saying, this is not true, fellas mm-hmm. out there, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, this is all fake. Don't worry about it. And then they launched into it. But still, people went insane. And a lot of people, from what I understand, died. Yeah. People and, uh, tuned in late. That's <laughs> it. And why, why, Eric, did they tune in late? Well, I believe that there was the music on uh, one of the other major networks, like, uh, and, you know, when they switched to a song that people weren't crazy about, I guess they started uh, surfing the dial. Uh, well, so that is probably some of it because, yeah, yeah there are millions of people listening right. to the radio. But what I read when I was doing my deep research into this mm-hmm. is that there was a ventriloquist on another oh, station, like right. NBC or yeah. something. And that ran like five or eight minutes over. And this show was underway when they tuned in. And that's why so many people didn't hear the disclaimer. Why would you tune out from ventriloquism (laughs) on the radio? (laughs) I have no idea. That's a hard thing to pull off. I thought about that. That's another reason I don't like. You would never see those lips moving. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, maybe it wasn't a ventriloquist. What's the one that's got the clown on their you know, well, uh, that's a, yeah, that's a, yeah, they have a clown on their thing. I guess that's I'll, another reason not to like that. It I may have to go back and research that more, <laughs> but it does sound crazy. from <laughs> right. a ventriloquist. Not as crazy as aliens have taken over, yeah. but still pretty crazy. Very true. All right. Well, let's move to 50 years ago. I've got this one. I'm thinking. But go you ahead. do. All right. Howard Hughes, the spruce goose. Yes. Flies for the first time. Um, at one time, it was the largest aircraft ever made. Um, you know, it had a wingspan, again, I didn't know this, over 100 yards of football field. It was larger wow. than a football field, the uh, wingspan. Didn't really know why he was doing it, but it was a contract with the U.S. government to try to build this huge floating mm. boat yeah. that would fly and escort, not escort, but ship uh, soldiers in World War II off to destinations to fight. Wow. Um, it never really, almost literally, got off the ground. It never did get off the ground, but it did fly. But that will come in just a moment. But uh, I guess it was over budget. Congress wasn't happy about it. Howard Hughes took it out of the hangar in Long Beach, California, and it was on the water is where it mm. took off from. I understand it got 700 feet in the air, went for one mile, and then landed in. And that's the one and only time this uh, aircraft ever flew. Um, wow. So he landed it. Now, where, where did it end up? Doing ah, thank you for that. It was like <laughs> you teased me. I said, I'm Eric, reading upside me down this here. question. <laughs> and you did. It is now at the um, Aviation Museum in McMinnville, Oregon. Oregon. Oh, 50 wow. miles southwest of Portland. I got to go see that. I that feel neat. the same way. I wish I had known that before um, I did this research into this. And again, this comes courtesy of History Channel. Uh, all these that I'm getting. It's a fascinating site. So if you're into this stuff, visit that. So after all these years, do you think they spruced it up again? Oh, I don't Sorry. know. I just can't uh, wrap my hands around that or head around <laughs> that one. Um, oh, November 3rd, 1998, former professional wrestler Jesse the Body Ventura is elected governor of Minnesota. His opponents, Hubert Humphrey, son of a of former Vice President Hubert Humphrey, and the mayor of St. Paul, Minnesota, they spent over $4.3 million on their campaigns. Ventura 
the Reform Party candidate spent $250,000. Wow. He raised his money by selling $22 T-shirts and accepting $50 donations from supporters. Most of that money was spent on spandex. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he needed some good outfit for the campaign. Of course. (laughs) But uh, kind of Mr. Plain speaking, why did he win? I heard some people saying the guy was authentic. He just, you know, was the real deal. If he said he didn't know something, he didn't know. And he probably said that more often than he said, I knew something. But nonetheless, people loved it. And I guess he tried to run for president in 2020. Didn't go far, but he was uh, doing that, I guess. So he's still active in that way. Let's see. More on the, um, well, one more about uh, international news and national. On November 4th, 1979, the Iran hostage crisis begins after the U.S. Embassy in Tehran is stormed. The radical Islamic fundamentalists took 90 hostages, most of them Americans. It lasted for 444 days. You know, that was the first time on any news broadcast, and they do it all the time now. They come up with special graphics and things. If there's a hurricane approaching, five days to impact, four days, you know, that kind of a thing. It was the opposite then. Do you remember that every night it was a big number? Right. You know, hunt is day 122, day one, you know, throughout. It was exactly. like how they opened up the news. Exactly. That was Walter Cronkite, I believe, mm. in the day 327 mm-hmm. of the hostage crisis. Mm-hmm. You know, good night from CBS News. Uh, yeah. And I know that reading President Carter was furious at that because it kept it out there going. Like, sure, sure. You, know, you can understand that. Center. On a more local level, on October 30th, 1925, KJR in Seattle doubled the strength of their transmitter to 1,000 watts, and it could be heard as far away as Alaska then. And then uh, around the same time, KHQ Radio in Spokane debuted also at 1,000 watts. Mm. So that was the beginning of radio in this area. Another radio um, additive here is that in 1973, K-A-Y-E in Puyallup went off the air after a long fight with the FCC. And it was related to what's known as the Fairness Doctrine. The station was accused of bias against Jews and blacks. Really? Absolutely. And that is why the Fairness Doctrine was so important, I believe, to the communications in this country. It lasted till 1987, and it was repealed. So, for example... If today I say something like, um, oh, gosh, the election was stolen. Yes. And I'm just saying I I know all this stuff. I would have been required prior to 1987 to have someone on the show next week going, no, it wasn't. And here's why. So the audience would hear both sides. Like a point counterpoint. The rise of Rush Limbaugh in the 90s was able to happen because he couldn't get away with all he was saying all out there. No one else could have under the Fairness Doctrine. And I think that was one nail in the coffin, in my view, as to where we're at today with so many people just having their own news sources. There's other things, of course, but that was the beginning of it. Interesting, yeah. Anybody want to comment on that, you can call uh, 425-653-1166. Leave your message. If you have any other view on that, we'll get it on the air. That's 425-653-1166. So um, that takes care of Voices in History today. Boys and girls, what'd you think? I feel pretty good about how I performed. I do, too. I missed a couple. Right. 
um, and and they were mostly positive this week. Well, that's due to Eric. <laughs> I'm looking at Eric. He's staring at me from last week. It's all, we're so I was depressing. waiting. I was trying to think back to my history with the spruce goose, and I was like, wait a minute, did it crash? <laughs> Are we going to end with yeah, that? Yeah, Paul's <laughs> doing this. It must have crashed. <laughs> no, it landed safely. Always yeah. fascinating stuff. Yeah, I hope so. I, I enjoy it, so I hope other people do. And again, that one came, the local came from uh, HistoryLink.org, and that's a local organization, nonprofit that was started by the late Walt Crowley. Remember him? Oh, yeah. He started this uh, site, and it's just wonderful, and it's nice to just dip back into the that's history great. of this state as well. I feel smarter. Good. Well, let's see. Where we go from here is um, Adele Ferguson. Uh, she was uh, the first female journalist in Washington State. And I had the opportunity to interview her about 20 years ago. And uh, she worked for the Bremerton Sun. In 1957, she was excluded from a journalist tour on the USS Nautilus a nuclear-powered submarine. And the reason she was excluded is that because she was a woman. Hmm. And uh, she wrote a column about, this is mine, the snub on the sub. I made that one up. You made that up. I don't usually do good at that stuff, but I went, wow, that kind of came to me. The snub on, or excuse me, the snub on the sub. And she wrote a column, and it attracted a nationwide audience. And the Navy reversed themselves and said, allow you on the sub and gave her a personal tour nice but that's adele ferguson let's pick up with my interview with her and that's what she talks about her first uh, part of the interview what story did you write that you believe had the biggest impact on a given situation the one that probably got the most attention was when the submarine nautilus came to uh, seattle back in the late 50s and uh, they put a notice out you know that it was going to it was going to sail up to Everett and the media was invited to a few select reporters were going to get to go so we sent my name in and the navy uh, called back and said I couldn't go and I we asked why and he said well you're a woman I said well, yeah I know that you know I noticed that gosh you know I look in the mirror all the time so they said well we don't allow any women on the model I said well why not and they said well there are all kinds of powder rooms for the men, but there aren't any for the women. And I said, well, uh, we don't have the separate facilities at home either, but it doesn't cause any problem. You know, my husband goes when he goes, I go and I go. And he said, well, you can't go. And I said, see, it's only going to be a couple of hours. Surely I can hold it from here to Everett. <laughs> he said, you can't go. Well, I called um, Henry Jackson. He tried to do something for me, and they, they, they refused. I called U.S. Senator Margaret Chase Smith of Maine, who was the first woman to ever go aboard a Navy ship of the line, and she hadn't been on the Nautilus either. So, but the Navy said, well, all right, they'll make a little deal with me. Okay, I can come down to the Nautilus, and I can step on board the deck of the Nautilus, and just before they leave, I have to get off. And I said, no, thanks. And I wrote a story about it, and it went everywhere. It ran all over the United States, particularly heavy, you know, on front page stuff in the, in the Navy towns and the other towns. And the Navy was just catching hell from the Army and the Air Force and the other up. And what? You know, what a big bunch of pansies you guys are. Anyway, a year later, the Nautilus came back and I got a letter from the Navy officially inviting me to sail up to Everett on board the Nautilus. And I went on board and uh, they did a little ceremony and had the sailors out on deck and they had a, gave me some cartoons showing a little outhouse on the deck of the Nautilus and sailors marching up and down and they made me an honorary member of the crew and before i left i didn't really have to go but i thought i owe myself this so i did go to the 
and then he left to go, but I went in the bathroom and shut the door anyway, just so they'd, they'd know that I wasn't going to get off that ship without visiting the head. What story are you most proud of over the years? I think I'm probably proudest of when I take on something that seems impossible, like some old guy over here at the Retzel Veterans Home that they're trying to kick out because he wants to know what they're doing with the money of the members. That what they always do at these veterans' homes is they stick some old retired captain in there, and he wants to run it like a ship, and everybody's supposed to kiss his behind, you know. So this guy wouldn't do it, and they tried to they order him out of there. And I took on the fight of not, you know, keeping him there. It took a year or so, and I had a file that was two inches thick with stuff that I had written. And we fought, 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 and that guy got to stay. And that's the kind of stuff I guess I'm proudest of. The role of journalism today, the role of newspapers and the media, uh, how do you think it's uh, being portrayed today and how people are viewing it? And, and what do you us. think about that? People hate us. And I think one of the problems is after uh, newspapers, back when I first started in the newspaper business, which was back in the 40s, the late 40s, why uh, we were we were true journalists. Now, there's People always say, oh, you're Daniel, you're a journalist. No, I'm not. I'm a columnist. A journalist is not supposed to have any bias or any opinion. A journalist presents the facts the way they are. Well, they got it got into advocacy journalism, and I think the teachers did it. The teachers in the journalism schools were sending these kids out of the schools and so forth who were going if they were if they were the environmental reporter, they took the inside of environment and everything was environment and anti business and industry. And if they were in politics, they chose what you know to pick their party and uh, if you were somebody who was a conservative and you were kinder to the Republicans and you were the Democrats and vice versa. And people got tired of that. Reporters have tried to be more like what the big shots on TV are. They want to be part of the story. And I think they have to step back and not be part of the story. And if the editors let them get away with it, it's the editor's fault. They shouldn't do that. Are you optimistic about the future of this state? Oh, sure. What the heck? Yes. We have trade. We're, we're very friendly with the Asians. we got Governor Gary Locke. Oh, he's a nice guy. And, uh, and it will be a good governor if he doesn't go overboard. But, yes, I'm very, I'm very uh, optimistic about the future of this state. Very much so. What can we expect in the future of ADL Ferguson? Well, God knows I don't know. You know, I'm really, I'm stuck with this column. I can't, every time I seem like I want to stop it, I, I get an enormous amount of mail. I get a lot more mail than I did when I was also a political writer. So I think I'm going to hang around a while longer. I uh, write for about 35 papers in the state. And uh, you get to where you like to write. And the only thing I don't like about it is you got to always think about that deadline. You get tired of meeting deadlines. So uh, I guess I'll still be just out there doing what I can, as long as people read it. Again, that was Adele Ferguson. As she started her career in 1961, and her career stretched over 50 years, she was with the Washington Press Capitol Press Corps in Olympia. Former Secretary of State Ralph Monroe said of Ferguson's influence in Olympia, quote, Elected officials would rush to the one newsstand that carried the Bremerton Sun in the legislative building to see who she had drowned in her column <laughs> this week. Adele knew how to hit and hit hard. Love it. She was a pit bull. Yeah. I mean, she really was. Fair. But, uh, again, she really uh, took her job seriously. On-the-job training, she never had a journalism course. I don't think she ever went to college. She had, like, Ten sisters and brothers and moved from Minnesota. Just a fascinating uh, background in history. I actually had an issue that we were trying to get through the legislature at the time, and she slammed the door on that one. Um, but 
what the heck. She was uh, a good, good person and uh, really enjoyed that interview I had with her. And it's Eric, you just reminded me as well. She has a bridge across Washington State Route 305 near Paulsbo. Yep. That's named after her, the Adele Ferguson overpass in her honor. Yeah, I've been, been across that several times, lived in Paulsbo for a while. But I didn't know the backstory, so thank you for that, Paul. Really interesting interview. Yeah, I thought so, too. So let's see. We're going to uh, get back to you in just a few moments, and we're just going to exit here for a second and be back with uh, – we're just going to talk about some subjects here. That you sounds and I, really Eric, good, yeah. That's then, a, the catalytic converter I want to start out with. We'll get back and banter back and forth. Yes. Sounds good to me. So here we're back, just gone for a few moments, hope no one left. Just want to have a kind of free-flow discussion, Eric, with some subjects going on. And certainly, Eric, if you have some opinions on this, uh, please chime in. Catalytic converter, we've heard a lot about that. Let me run through some statistics. And again, this comes courtesy of Neil Peterson in his uh, blog, Mirandering musings neilstrips.com is where you can see that i'll give that out again this is where i got this information from so let me just jump in catalytic converters stolen in 2018 1300 stolen in 2021 52 000 why are so many being stolen the value and cost of the precious metals inside the catalytic converters platinum palladium and rhodium Platinum was recently trading at $900 per ounce, palladium $2,200 per ounce, and rhodium at $13,000 an ounce. So there's where you get the demand. Um, And also, it takes about 30 seconds to one minute to uh, steal a catalytic converter. What is a catalytic converter? It's a key component of the car's emissions control system. Got that. Now, here are the 10 most targeted vehicles. Number one, Toyota Prius, 2001 to 2021. Ford F-Series, 1985 to 2021. Honda Accord, 1989 to 2020. Chevrolet Silverado, 2007 to 2017, Honda Element, 2002 to 2011, Subaru Forester, 1998 to 2020, Toyota Tacoma, 1995 to 2021. Now, what do they do, can you do, actually, to prevent this? You can install a catalytic converter anti-theft device. It's like a screen that you can put around it. Um... You can also go to a muffler shop and etch the car's VIN number in the converter along with a very vibrant paint job that can withstand higher heat. Hmm. There's two things you can do. To replace a stolen catalytic converter and can run anywhere between $1,300 to $3,000. And what prompted Neil to write about this is he had a catalytic converter stolen from him. Stolen. 
So I hope that was helpful. Give me some feedback on that in the studio. I mean, um, yeah, just, it, it, it is helpful because a lot of times you hear about the problem, but they don't really go in depth and talk about you know, are there's a, are there any ways to prevent it? What kind of costs are you looking at? I think that's helpful. What would you say, Eric? Yeah, no, I, I think it's important stuff. I I drive an electric car now, and so no catalytic, catalytic converter, and I'm extremely grateful <laughs> that mm-hmm. I don't really have to think about that anymore uh, until they find something to steal off electric cars, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, which I'm sure will come eventually. But right now it's like, oh, one less thing to worry about, <laughs> you know. Well, I guess for me it was like I didn't really – I knew they were stealing it for the metals or something, but I had no idea – the value of the metals Amazing. that are in there. You know, I mean, that's incredible. Well, and I guess, I mean, is there a way that maybe the wherever they're taking this, the scrap right. metal, play, how are they not culpable in some way if it's someone just drops off one and it's hacksawed off on either Ex- side? I exactly. I, I don't think we've, you know, seen the uh, law enforcement uh, investigative work yet, or maybe they have, but they've kept it quiet of where the sale is taking place. You right. know, it's one thing to accumulate these uh, catalytic converters, but I, I don't think that most of the people that are stealing them are back in a shop somewhere, melting them down and, you know, yeah. and selling the raw materials. They're, they're taking them somewhere. And, um, all the reports I've heard are, you know, the scrap, uh, dealers say that they're not buying any of them. So right. where are they going? Well, I just heard someone was busted or something like back in the Midwest or close that, you know, he's like $52 million he's made from this or something. Wow. So there is a market for these, obviously, and um, there are people that are buying them up for this. So uh, that's a good question, though. But I did read something about that. There was a big bust on this or something. So anyhow, know something that maybe you didn't know before this. Um, and how about this one, shifting to a more pleasant subject, and that would be from TripAdvisor. The 12 Most Beautiful Places in Washington State. I'll just list them off, and then we can talk about them. Snoqualmie Falls was number one. Mount Rainier National Park. Washington Waterways via ferry. So hop on a ferry and just go for an afternoon ride on the ferry. Paulsbow. Hey, there. <laughs> there you go. Back to Paulsbow's in there. San Juan Islands, of course. North Cascades National Park. Hurricane Ridge Olympic National Park. The Rainforest, Olympic National Park, and the Wilderness Coast, Olympic National Park. I didn't know much about this one, but it is on the coast. And you should, if you want to uh, uh, access this, you can go to Lake Ozette or something like that. Yes. Ozette, is that what it is? Okay. Ozette. And I guess you know something about that. I guess it's really accessible and beautiful. Yeah, and I think there's a lodge there. I've always wanted to go there. I'm not sure if it's on tribal lands or not, but I remember seeing a picture of the lodge. Have you been there, Eric? Have you been to that lake, Ozat? I haven't, but it, uh, I'm just looking at pictures now. It is beautiful. Real pretty, huh? Yeah. And Lake Crescent is up yes. there as well, and that's another beautiful spot. Yeah. That, that drive around Lake Crescent yeah. is amazing. I've got to give it to Snoqualmie Falls, though. That's where I asked my wife to marry me. Oh, good. Yeah, back way back in the eighties. All right. Well, you got to get a copy of this show. It's and still play working. It tonight. You're going to probably get a work. nice dinner or something That's else, right. huh? Very nice. Um, I missed three actually when I got off of this, but Mount St. Helens National Park is there. National Park Grand Coulee Corridor National Scenic Byway, which um is a 
Desert Corridor. I had to look this up. 150-mile Desert Corridor around, uh, obviously, Cooley Dam. And then there's a Sun Lakes Dry Falls State Park. Let's uh, say that one more time. Sun Lakes Dry Falls State Park. Because hmm. it used to be the largest waterfall in the world. And now it's dry. I don't know why, but that's there. Hmm. And then there's a Steptoe Butte State Park, 3,600-foot uh, mountain that is um, on a clear day. You can see 200 miles, and it's uh, located in the Palouse Rolling Hills. It's about uh, 28 miles north of Washington State University campus. You know, regardless, Paul, I would recommend anyone that lives in the state and just doesn't sort of get out of King, Pierce, and Snohomish County to really take a weekend and drive to other places of this state. It is beautiful, and it's mm-hmm. unlike any other state in the nation in terms of topography and climate and the trees, and then you go to mountains, and the, and it's just amazing. Um, and I only say that because when I lived in Bend, Oregon, I didn't take enough advantage of all the scenery and things to do there because I lived there. I felt like, yeah, I'll get to it next weekend, you know, <laughs> yes. and you just don't. We yeah. all do that. We're truly blessed. I mean, we're our natural surroundings are, you know, some of the most gorgeous in the world. And, you know, Washington State, it's the smallest state landmass-wise in the West. True. And have all this, it's a big state, mm-hmm. but, you know, it's not like Wyoming or, sure. you know, uh, Nevada, drive forever, but or California. But to have all this in this state, the Pacific Ocean, the yeah. mountains, then you go east of the mountains. I went to school at Washington State University, and I fell in love with the Palouse. When I first got there, it was like, I love the trees and all mm-hmm. this and the mountains, and I still do. But that beauty over there, some of the most beautiful sunsets I've seen in my life is in the Palouse Hills. Yeah. Now, you have to hit it at the right time. Uh, spring and early summer is great, and the fall is wonderful. The colors are, are magnificent. And the, as I say, the sky and, and the sunsets are you know very spectacular. But uh, you're I right, I understand, Eric. too, there's a college out there that's not too bad. Yeah. College is pretty good. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I get back there the quite Cougs. a bit. Yeah. When I went there, there were 13,000 students, undergraduates. Now it's 26,000. Wow. So it's grown quite a bit. Beautiful campus. Let's see what else. We're kind of coming in the uh, home stretch here. And I wanted to get into something else. And that is about, um, let's say you want to work at home. You're an entrepreneur and you're looking for something to do. And, uh, This is according to Entrepreneur Magazine. I won't be able to get through them all, but here are some ideas. Event planner. I mean, that is something that you can do from home. Um, Editing and proofreading. They're needed in in many different uh, quarters, like doing shows and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so many people are using content on their websites. It is just an expanding field. So if you're a good writer, I mean, these are things that you can do and uh, really take advantage of that. Bookkeeper. I mean, think about that. The other thing is, I didn't know this, but you don't need to be a CPA to be a bookkeeper. Um, you can just sign up for a bookkeeping class at uh, a community college or do it even online. And that's something that you can make pretty good money off doing. I know a friend of mine who's been doing that for a while and he's doing very, very well. Uh, let's see, a travel agent, hmm. number of those possibilities. I've known a few people who have started that. Voice work, hey, why don't we do that? I mean, yeah. look at doing something like that. So, yeah, again, writing would be a big one to do from your home. 
There's bloggers. There's so many things out there that you can do. Baker, caterer, chef, cooking, all that. You can do from literally your own kitchen. And uh, the thing is, is that these jobs are paying much better than they used to. And, and because of now, there's such a shortage now of people really seeking employment and have left the employment field. So there's like a big hole in the line right now that you can go and uh, get some work there. But that's, again, according to Entrepreneur Magazine. Any comments before we go? Uh, not really, other than to say that, uh, that's interesting. I, you know, it makes sense when you give the list, but a lot of these things I never thought of. Right. So, yeah. And how many times have you heard someone starting a business out of their kitchen? You yeah. know, really. Right. And they, yeah. they just produce the most magnificent cookies or, you know. Sure. Yeah. And just suddenly, boom, they're a, they're a hit. My commentary today is about another myth. Myth number seven, which is in my book, Pre-Flight Checklist, is self-employment for you. Today, thinking positive is the key to success. There's a billion-dollar industry developed around the concept that thinking positively will change an outcome from bad to good, and that if you always think positively, good things will happen to you. I hate to sound like a Debbie Downer, but this is ridiculous, especially if you're starting your own business. There is nothing wrong with being a positive person, but sometimes it will help you to be more negative. The important thing is to be realistic or a pragmatist about the problems you're facing and how to handle them. A friend once told me this story. A man is out on the ocean in a sailboat, but his boat is not moving. Is he an optimist, a pessimist, or a realist? If he's an optimist, he says, well, maybe the wind will pick up later today. If he's a pessimist, he says, damn. I'm going to be stuck out here all night because there's just no win. If he's a realist, he says, let's just adjust the sales. If you're a business owner, you should hope for the best, but be prepared for the worst. What can you do to prepare your business for the next recession or economic slowdown when it comes? And it will come. The economy moves in cycles, alternately peaking and slowing down every five to eight years or so. Of course, you shouldn't have a negative attitude as a business owner when dealing with employees and customers. Your persona should always be positive and optimistic. You must project confidence in what you are doing at all times to the general public and, again, to your employees and customers. But as a business owner, you must develop the ability to look at things as they are, not as you wish they were, and make decisions accordingly. You must continuously ask yourself what could go wrong and take steps to counter or prevent the negative outcomes. Thinking positive will not save your business from disaster. The smartest people in the room, whether they show it or not, are always exploring the negatives every decision they make. That's all the time we have for today. Next week, the science of hate, how prejudice becomes hate, and what we can do to stop it. Very interested in talking to this author, Matthew Williams. Have a great rest of the week.